Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Good evening, Missoula, and thank you so much for joining us on the Trail Less Traveled. Tonight's show is a continuation of last week's interview with adventurer extraordinaire and one of my personal mentors, John Turk. Now, last Sunday, we talked about sea kayaking around the world. Tonight, on the Trail Less Traveled, we will be talking to John about mountain biking around the world, namely in the Gobi Desert and up the Tibetan Plateau to the birthplace of the Dalai Lama. We will talk to John about backcountry skiing around the world and the precautions that one must take when backcountry skiing as far as avalanches are concerned. John, tell us about your early years of adventuring. What have you learned and how has your approach changed over the past 40 years? Well, when we talk about adventuring, a lot of people concentrate and get very, very good in a particular sport like rock climbing or skiing or, or something. I've been more of a generalist and as a consequence, technically not as good at any sport. But your my early trips, actually, I look back at them and, and some of them were, were quite successful. We did a bunch of first ascents in the Bolivian Andes a long, long, long time ago. Uh, mixed rock and ice routes. Nothing as difficult as is done today, but, uh, you know, still, anytime you're doing a first descent, it's really exciting because you don't know what the rock will be like, what the ice will be like, what the cracks will be like. When you're young, you have the advantage that you're young and strong and pliable, and the disadvantage that you don't have kind of the depth that you would have later on. I had a lot of failures in the early trips. I, I tried now shifting from rock climbing to back in the water. I tried doing the Northwest Passage in an open rowboat with my wife, Chris. And we were young, we were strong, we were technically capable, but we just didn't have the patience. And I think if I've learned anything now over the years is patience. That when the weather turns against you, when things go south on you, that there will always be windows. There will always be windows where you can move through. Well, not always. Let's take that back. There will usually be windows. Patience, number one. And number two, a complete acceptance of, you know, a failure in the sense of not reaching your goal. So, yeah, in those early years, th- that's what you learned. And a lot of times, like I turned back on McKinley. Uh, we got up to 17,000 on McKinley, and it was really, really cold, 50 below, and the wind was blowing. Well, it's too cold to summit when it's 50 below. But today, I would have gone back down to base camp at 14,000, waited whatever it took, and gone back. And I think I would have summited. But in those days, it's like, oh, it's too cold. The weather's bad. I'm out of here. And I bailed. 
And so I think that combination of just patience and acceptance of what the weather is doing, not pushing into bad weather, but at the same time not retreating in the face of bad weather. John, I would love to keep adventuring, but I just don't know how to fund my adventures without getting a, quote, real job. How do you fund your adventures? Well, I can tell you how I can fund my adventures. I can't tell you that my way would work for you. I got my PhD in chemistry in 1971, which gave me some academic credibility. And then I wrote environmental and later earth science textbooks. And it was an incredibly lucrative job in the sense that I would do a project that would take a certain amount of time. And then the book would go into production and whatnot. And I would be totally unemployed uh, for blocks of time. And it, it paid well. I got basically New York City wages and I was living in the mountains in the Rockies. So living a, an inexpensive lifestyle. I think it's absolutely essential. People ask me this all the time. You can earn money or you cannot spend money. The net result is the same. So living cheaply is critical. And I've lived in cars and vans and chicken coops and tents and all sorts of substandard housing. So everybody I know who has started a life of adventuring, the biggest expense you have is housing. Cut that out. Get that down to zero or close to zero. Uh, I mean, you pay $800, $900 a month on rent? Give me a break. It doesn't work. You can't support a nomadic lifestyle and have that level of comfort. So give up way more than you think you can give up. Now, I've been lucky, really lucky, in that my textbooks did well. Finally, after 40 years as a textbook writer, just last year, cold turkeyed and quit uh, my day job. And now I make a hodgepodge living. I get some Social Security. I'm a geezer. I have some sponsorship. I do writing, my books, public speaking, all that things. And and every – like if you ask me how, how I'm going to make a living in February of 2013, I don't think I could tell you. But I know that I'm good for the next month. My boyfriend and I live in a school bus in Missoula. We have been good for the for past you. two yeah, years. Good for you. Yeah, you see? The first step. You're, you're right on it. Nice. And it doesn't matter that it gets so cold. You know, you just – you just you put on a down jacket. Exactly. You live in your puffy jacket all winter long. You live cheaply, and then you can go to Baja, you know, in in January or whatever you plan on doing. You know. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's totally amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's a lifetime where experiences and free time are the most valuable commodities that you can have, and everything else has to take second, you know, second level. Except for new skis. New skis are right up there. <laughs> John, do you have certain gear in your kit which you have used over the years and swear by? <laughs> well, because I do so many different trips and also because gear is changing so rapidly, I, I can't think of anything, to be honest with you, that I used in 1979 that I, on a sea kayak trip that I would take in 2013 on a ski trip. <laughs> so... Um, what about food? Food. I've changed on food uh, on that. Uh, first of all, w- one of the things, there's two kinds of trips. One kind of trip is when you're totally isolated, 
you're on a mountain or in Greenland ice cap or Antarctic ice cap and there's no people. And, and those are great. And another kind of trip is when you're traveling in an area where there are aboriginal people still living in a semi-old ways. And I do a lot of the latter. And when I travel among those people, I eat what they eat, which is whatever. Uh, I remember one trip, I made this great, great extreme effort to carry power bars, you know, they were going to be when all when everything fell through. I would at least have a power bar, and I was traveling with this Koryak guy, and he had this little bag, and in it was the dried walrus intestines and the fat from the knuckle of a bearded seal. And like, well, I need a power bar, and he'd <laughs> eat his walrus intestines and bearded seal knuckle fat, and. You know, I went, ha, 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 I've got power bars. He's got that stuff. And then I ran out of power bars, and I started eating from his uh, snack kit. And, boy, it had a lot of power. But basically, okay, on this uh, trip to Ellesmere that uh, Eric Boomer and I did in 2011, where we were carrying our own food, we went to the good food store, to the bulk section, and looked up, we had a little calculator and calculated the calories per 100 grams, how many calories per 100 grams, and cooking time because we were carrying our own fuel with a caveat that you can't just drink straight olive oil for three months. You have to have some balance and roughage and so on and so forth. Um, just get things that, you know, hummus and tabbouleh and quick oats and granola and uh, nuts and nuts and nuts. Just get stuff that has a high calorie count, low cooking, and is reasonably sort of palatable. And that's what food is. Do you find yourself eating a vegetarian diet on your long expeditions? Well, that's a sensitive question because I am a hunter and I do hunt on a long expedition. Uh, Sometimes it's illegal Sometimes I do it anyway. I mean, if you take a rabbit, if you're the first person that's been there in 100 years and you take a couple of rabbits, I don't think that's environmental catastrophe compared to other things like, you know, changing the atmosphere or something like that. You're trying to live. You're trying to survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do hunt on long expeditions. I, I usually carry a gun of some sort. John, you've been all these places. What's still on your list of places to go? (laughs) The list is so long. I'm 67 years old. I'm going to have to come to grips with the fact that, you know, the world is bigger. You know, it's kind of the bull in the tea kettle shop kind of scenario. I mean, there's so many things to do. I want to go back in the ice. I just love being in the ice. The Ellesmere trip was really long and really hard, but just going back in the ice to be there without a goal into that shifting, moving ice, the environment that changes more dramatically than any other environment on Earth from day to day and week to week. Yeah, I want to go back in the ice. The um, I just got back from Central Asia and the Altai Mountains being the source of many migrations, many linguistic changes, uh, the start of many cultural traditions in the Altai. I've been in the in the region of the Altai twice. I have a dozen things to do left. I want to go with my partner Misha back to northeast Siberia and visit now the grave of the shaman that we spent time with 
and then do another journey up on the tundra in a, in a region that we weren't able to access once before. Mandela, the list goes on and on. And wait a minute, hold it. Wait a minute, stop. There's also so many things to do right here in Montana. I live in the Bitterroot. I don't know if anybody has, you know, hiked the Bitterroot Divide from Nez Pierce Pass to Lolo Pass. I don't know if it's been done. I say it on the air because if somebody wants to do it and beat me to it, that's fine. I want to do it. John, let's play a song. Okay. Let's play Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. Who in your measly little world would you say is made out of gold and not be sold or something like that? It was pretty close. But anyway, that whole spirit of not giving in to the expectations of our parents and our society and the economic expectations of our politicians, they want you to work to create a consumer environment, economic environment. Don't fall for it. (laughs) Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We are in the studio with National Geographic's Adventurer of the Year, John Turk. John, your wife Nina and you just returned from China, where you spent three to four weeks riding bikes on the Tibetan Plateau. Through a convoluted route, you ended up at your goal, the birthplace of the Dalai Lama. I spoke to you a little while you were in China. Please tell us about this expedition. Uh, Let's give a little history here. In 1955 or 58 or something like that, the Chinese conquered Tibet brutally, ruthlessly. Now, Tibet is an interesting country. If you look at the long history of Tibet, At one point, the Tibetans were very warlike people. And then, under the influence of growing Buddhism and the teachings of the Buddhist monks and the lamas, the Tibetan people became a very peaceful people and preaching a peaceful existence. And the Tibetan people live in the high mountains in a very harsh environment in the Himalayas, uh, often above 14, 15, 16, 17,000 feet, often in a very dry zone where there's agriculture is difficult. And many of them live a herder existence. They herd goats and sheep and yaks. And they, more than any other people I've ever traveled among, they live as much as possible in a colorful way. They adorn their bodies with beautiful jewelry and or, ornate um, knives and belts and so on and so forth, and in a way that constantly, constantly reaffirms what I've been talking about in these last two interviews, the spiritual connection with nature, and refutes the many of the premises of most modern countries, which is consumerism, which is the importance of 
sophisticated tools and weaponry and and lived a very simple life close to their spirits. So that was conquered by the Chinese. Now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, why did the the Chinese conquer Tibet? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a scholar and I'm certainly not in the head of of the Chinese leaders. But you, you have China, which is now very dedicated to commercialism in a major way. I mean, if you haven't been in China, you don't even know. You look at the smallest town and there'll be 20 construction cranes building 20. You, you think of a town like Hamilton, Montana, and look on the skyline and see 20 factories and office buildings being built with big construction cranes. You see roadways, transmission lines, railroads, transportation arteries, construction factories. It's its incomprehensible, the amount of growth and the amount of allegiance and dedication towards this goal of consumerism and industrial production. And now you have this little enclave of people that live in the mountains I I mean, this one guy, we met this one guy, and he says, you know what I like about living out here on the plateau? We have free love. We have good drugs that they get from the land. I don't own anything, and I don't take a bath. And I thought, wow, this is a hippie from 1969. But no, it's not a hippie from 1969. It's a Tibetan herder on the plateau. And so you had this non-commercial spiritual people And it was conquered by the Chinese and crushed. And, you know, maybe the Chinese were there after, you know, some kind of wealth, some sort of uh, natural resources or something. I don't know why they did it, but this was the only or the last major country in the world that was built on this premise. The Chinese conquered it. That was a generation ago, mid-1950s. So what's going on today? Well... That's what we went there to find out. And first of all, when it came time to go to Tibet and the Chinese said, oh, if you want to go to Tibet, you're going to have to pay us $400 a day each, $800 a day to go to Tibet for you and your wife. That money wasn't going to go to the Tibetans. That money was going to the Chinese. So here we are. We want to look at the destruction of this beautiful culture and we're going to pay the captors almost $1,000 a day, $30,000 to be there for a month? I don't think so. That wasn't going to happen. But as it turns out, north of Tibet, in Central Asia, all the borders are mixed up in relationship to geography, geology, meteorology, cultures. The Kazakhstan the border of Kazakhstan doesn't border where the Kazakh people live. It borders where some of the Kazakh people live because these borders have been changing for centuries. So the Tibetan plateau geologically and culturally is part what we now call Tibet, but is also partly what we call Sichuan province in China and Shanghai province in China. What does that mean? It means that the Chinese conquered those parts of the Tibetan people earlier. So we found that we could go to Shanghai province and not be in the radar of the Chinese uh, of this. You know, they're trying to commercialize. They know that people are interested in the Tibetan people, 
And they say, great, we will use the Tibetan people and the Tibetan spirit as a way to make money. And we we wanted to visit the Tibetan people, but we didn't want to be hijacked and uh, blackmailed by the Chinese and give them the money. So we went to Shanghai province. So what do you see? So we, we flew into this large city, Jining, which is a city of uh, oh, well over a million. All big Chinese cities have over a million. There's 1.3 billion people in China, so you need a lot of cities over a million. And it's a totally modern city with gleaming glass and steel buildings. And, you know, you could buy a Ferrari if you want. You could buy Chanel number no. 5 if you want. You could buy anything, any luxury item in the world you could buy in Jining. And we started riding our bikes. Uh, Jining is about 8,000 feet. The north part of the Tibetan Plateau is around 12. So you have a 4,000-foot climb to get up onto the plateau, which takes several days because it's, it's gradual. And you're driving along, and in the U.S., like on a big freeway, the big trucks are 18-wheelers. The big Chinese trucks are 22-wheelers significantly bigger than the big long-distance haul trucks, and they're carrying cement and rebar and steel and culvert onto the Tibetan Plateau to commercialize this zone. Why have they closed off of Tibet? You, uh, right now, foreigners, even, after, even if you pay your $800 a day or your $400 a day, right now, foreigners are not allowed in Tibet for any reason. And why? Well, the Tibetan monks, many of them, I don't know the exact number, it seems to grow every day, are setting themselves on fire in the public streets in protest of the Chinese treatment of the Tibetan people, the Chinese taking the land, the rivers, the water, and so on. And this is stirring up a lot of emotional feeling in Tibet. And when we applied for our visa, they said, yeah, you, we can get in, but it's $400 a day a person. And then later they said, no, nobody can go at all. And it's because there's this quiet unrest and quiet rebellion. And, I mean, this is public knowledge. You read about it in the newspaper, Google, you know, Tibetan monks burning themselves, and you'll read all about it. So... We wanted to go onto the Shanghai province, onto the Tibet Plateau, and see what's going on, and also eventually to get to the birthplace of the Dalai Lama. We were traveling with a friend of mine who is also an oppressed person. He's a wee person. There are, I think, 56 minorities in China, 93 or so percent of the population in China is Han Chinese. They're the rulers. And then that other 6 or 7% is broken into another 50 or more minorities, all of which are oppressed. So we're riding out of Jining, out of this big modern city, and these 22-wheel trucks continuously are carrying construction materials, consumer goods, onto the Tibetan Plateau. I read a book that was written just like five years ago about the roads and, and you know, a travel book in the area. And they were talking about how these roads are, you know, five mile an hour, four wheel drive roads. That was five years ago. Now they're super highways. 
So at first I was like really bummed. I I was looking to go for a bike ride on old dirt roads and with ponies and yaks and all of this stuff. And now we're riding with these big trucks. And I'm going, oh man, I don't want to be here. But then I go, no, we're going to keep riding and we're going to find a little bit of the old Tibet. And we did. Uh, We rode for a month or so and we found the old Tibet and we found the birthplace of the Dalai Lama through a convoluted route. But the central take-home image that I took from this trip is that these places where the old ways still exist are isolated islands being surrounded by this industrialization. And then you go from there because I understand we live in a technical world. You know, I own cars and computers like everybody else. When I fly in a, around in an airplane, I have a strong vested interest that the wings don't fall off of that airplane. We live in a technical world. That's a fact. And we can't, you know, romanticize the old ways. If I break my leg, I'm going to go to a Western physician. We can't romanticize the old ways too much. But at the same time, we can't forget our heritage And we can't forget this message that's coming out of the Tibetan Plateau, that's coming out of artist colonies in North America, that's coming out of many, many places in the world that are each one being isolated and surrounded by industrialization of this spirit where, like I said, free time, the spirit journey, our relationship with our communities, with our spirits, with our art is more important than our commercialization. And that, you feel it being surrounded and strangled when you're on the Tibetan Plateau. John, where else have you mountain biked around the world and where is your favorite trail? Well, mountain biking, I love to single track ride right here in western Montana. We have, I think, way underestimated high quality single tracking all throughout the Bitterroots and uh, all throughout the mountains of western Montana, and I love riding here. It's one of the reasons that I love to be here. As soon as you start loading gear on your mountain bike, camping gear and food and whatnot, you you really lose a lot of agility that it's nice to have on a mountain bike. But I've mountain biked in Central Asia, in Mongolia, and in the Altai Mountains both on the Mongolian side, the Kazakh side, and the Chinese side in Xinxiai province. And again, it, it's a little bit like the Tibetan experiences that I just talked about of going into the mountains in Central Asia in this birthplace of a lot of spiritual and artistic creation back in past times and traveling in this land of a very old and simple way of living. John, when I was in China, I went there six times with my mother. We did different sections every time we went because she was international flight attendant for 40 years. So she oh, wow. flew cool. to China often. And so we went there. Wonderful. We went from Chongqing to Yichang on the Yangtzejian, on the mm-hmm. Yangtze River, as the water was rising. Oh, okay. So you, you could look down into the water and see buildings that were underwater. Oh, wow. And I was just starting to get into my career of interviewing people. And mm-hmm. so I had my little video camera there. And mm-hmm. I found that there was a fear in people that I was interviewing. They didn't answer the questions honestly, I felt. I often asked them, these relocated people that were re- being relocated to little apartment buildings on the high tops 
were above the waterline. Their family had been on a farm for thousands of years, and this is like their ancestry, their home, but mm-hmm. now they're being relocated. When I asked them how they felt about their relocation, they answered what seemed to be the answer I think the government would have wanted them to answer. It wasn't a real honest answer. It was, oh yes, very happy to be here right. in this new building, but the farm is gone. How are they going to make a living? Did you, how did you find people reacting to what China's doing in Tibet? Did, um, did you talk to any Tibetans about? Oh, yeah. And I've certainly experienced exactly what you just described. Oh, everything is harmonious and the Chinese people are all harmonious and happy. You know, I got that answer hundreds of times to the point where I stopped even asking, you know, to stick a video camera in somebody's face and say, how do you feel about the Chinese government? You're going to get a non-answer. But certainly on the Tibetan plateau, I... In the in the countryside, uh, the population was 99% Tibetan, and we were traveling with a Chinese friend who spoke Chinese but not Tibetan. In many places, people didn't speak Chinese, only Tibetan. I had many people come up to me and say, look, we've got a real problem <laughs> here. The Chinese are taking away our land, our culture, our independence, our humanity, our ideas, our spirituality, and the world has to know that. And I I think the world does know that to a large extent. Yes, I mean, lots of people talk to us. But what I think is really important is to understand that this isn't just a problem for the Tibetan people. This is a problem for all of us because it's a metaphor of the way that this commercialization of our planet is conquering all of us. And in China, they do it with guns and brutally, but in North America, they do it also. And we have all this thing. You read the economic, any economic newspaper, and you will read over and over and over again, you know, we have to jumpstart the economy by consuming more. Go to Walmart, buy more stuff. Ah, uh, no, no, no. And so the this terrible plight of the Tibetan people of being forcibly crushed in here, right here in North America, the same thing is happening to us. Look what happened to the hippie movement. It's gone. It's been destroyed. It's dissolved. Why did it get dissolved? Yeah, they killed a few people at Kent State, but they didn't kill us all. They just changed our minds. And uh, that's as brutal as the Chinese. Well, maybe it's not as brutal because we, we can have free minds, but... I think we have to look at Tibet and say, this is happening to us, just not as brutally. John, let's play a song. Does any song come to mind when you think about mountain biking? (laughs) Oh, you know, uh, um, let's play Guitar Gently Weeps. When I told my wife uh, I was going to choose that song, you know, it's about... Looking at the world, I look at the room and I see it needs sweeping. My guitar gently weeps. It's what we were just talking about is there's all this society is telling me I have to have a a neat house or a new house or a clean house. But what's important is my art. And um, that's just exactly what we're talking about. And the fact is I am a little messy. And when I (laughs) told nine of that, the room we were in was a little messy and she just laughed. But uh, the point is there. Live in your school bus.
It's the trail less traveled with Mandela. We are back in the studio with John Turk, one of National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year. John, let's talk about backcountry skiing. Oh, good. Where are some unknown places around the globe you would recommend for backcountry skiing? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a really hard one. I mean, backcountry skiing, there's more places to backcountry ski than to do any other known sport. Anytime you have topography, you have some kind of mountain and you have snow, you have backcountry skiing. So you look at a mountain and you look at any mountain range anywhere, and if it gets wet, if it snows, you have backcountry skiing. There's two components of backcountry skiing, I think, that you have to balance. One is the sheer exoticness of it. We skied in the Tian Shan in Central Asia. I love Central Asia. I love traveling in Central Central Asia. And then the other is the quality of the powder you're in, the quality of the snow. And I think for snow quality, British Columbia, Northern Rockies has the best snow quality in the world. It's relatively stable compared with snowpacks like Colorado or desert snowpacks. You know, there's always avalanche problems, but it's relatively stable. And you get powder. You get lots of powder. If you go into the high ranges of Alaska too, North America is a really awesome place to ski. There's very uninhabited. There's lots of mountain ranges. You can go in and camp for a week or 10 days and not see another person. You can't do that in Europe. There's tens of gazillions of people. And there's powder. Now, okay, so let's say you say, well, I want to do something exotic. I want to ski in Central Asia. Great. Access is difficult. And a lot of those ranges, because of global warming and everything, you're going to be skiing a lot of pretty icy stuff. I've skied in North America. I've skied in Alaska. I've skied in Central Asia. I've skied in Bolivia, skied in the Alps. And the remote ranges where I've skied in the Andes and Bolivia and in Central Asia, you're skiing a lot of very icy snow. So it's fun. It's exotic. You get first descents. You, the journey to base camp and the journey away is, is through amazing cultures in Central Asia. So you have to decide whether you're you're going for turns or you're going for the whole experience. And I'm not I'm not rating one is better than the other, but a friend of mine just called me up the other day, just two or three days ago and wanting to know about skiing in 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 China just uh, just west of the Taklamakan Desert and there's big mountains there 7000 meters that are skiable but at the same time because it's a desert range you're going to be skiing ice so um yeah it's like comparing two different two different beasts John let's talk about precautions regarding backcountry skiing Oh boy Okay, disclaimer, my wife died in an avalanche in 2005. Um, I've been busted up in avalanches. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, avalanches are real. And that's what gets people. If you're a good backcountry skier, I've essentially never heard of somebody, or almost never, you know, if you're going to go in the backcountry, you have to be a good skier. Like, you're going to ski and you're not going to fall a lot. I mean, if you're extreme skiing, that's a whole different picture. You know, let's not count that. You fall, you die. Let's not go there because that's a whole different game. But mo- very, very few people will, with modern bindings, will cross a tip and break their femur in the backcountry. It can happen, but very rarely. 
what happens is avalanches, and avalanches are real. People die in them all the time. I'm not going to pretend to give an avalanche course in 15 seconds on the radio here, but I think there's two things. One is that there are a lot of courses and a lot of books if you're a beginner, and if you're not a beginner, don't ever let your your guard up. Uh, On the day my wife died, she made a very fundamental mistake that she didn't have to make. And I'll just tell that story briefly because it's a lesson. I don't want other people to die. A few weeks prior, uh, we had been skiing a really steep hourglass couloir in British Columbia. And my friend skied first. And then I didn't see him. Usually when you're skiing steep lines like that, it should be always. You ski one at a time. And... My friend, who was a very, very good skier, took off, and I didn't see him. I didn't see him come out of the the neck, the steep neck, out onto the—I'm standing on top of the ridge, and he takes off, and he disappears. And I wait and wait and wait and wait, and I didn't see him. So I I skied across. I cut the top of the slope to, to look down over the horizon line to see where he was, and I kicked the little slide off and knocked him off his feet and carried him quite a ways. And he said, what were you doing, man? I thought we were skiing one at a time. And I said, well, I waited five minutes and I didn't see and blah, blah, blah. So he said, well, he had hit a rock and lost the ski and so on and so forth. But the thing is that we put two people on the slope at a time. And you're not supposed to do that. Everybody can count from one to two. And... That night, Chris and I came home, and we sat on the couch. We were very much in love. It was a wonderful marriage. And we we sat on the couch, and we held hands, and we said, Look, there's lots of mistakes you can make. There's lots of nuance. There's lots of gray zone in avalanche awareness. But there are some things that are some rules that you can follow all of the time. And one of them is one person on a ski slope at a time. And we held hands and we looked at each other in the eyes and we said, let's not make the simple mistakes. And then two weeks later, we're on this big line in the Sierras, a really big face, uh, the east face of Mount Tom, oh, it's not quite a 14,000-foot peak, but it's a, major, it's a major line. And we had heard woomphing in the snow. We knew where there's instabilities in the pack. I skied first, and I found a convoluted line that I thought was safe. And then this other guy, Will, started skiing, and Chris jumped in right on top of him. And now there were two people skiing a big, dangerous slope that had given us audible warnings. There was instabilities in the pack. Why did she do that? I don't know. I don't know. She died. I don't know why she did it. But the point I'm trying to make is, look, it's a dangerous sport. We're all out there. There's unknown, unseen, unpredictable risks. But there's simple rules Go to school, read the book, and don't 
Don't even for one day give up or go lax on those simple rules. Thank you very much, John, for sharing and for teaching us these lessons. John, where's your favorite place to backcountry ski around Missoula? I don't backcountry ski around Missoula very much. I used to backcountry ski in the southern Bitterroot. It's now middle of November. I move north into British Columbia, and uh, for the last 20 years, I've been skiing in and around the East Kootenays, Fernie, BC, the Purcells, uh, up into Rogers Pass area. That's basically where I ski. John, tell us about our planet. What do we need to know, and what can we do about it? <laughs> we, we know what we need to know. We know that industrialization is warming the planet. It's nearing tipping points. I just read in Scientific American this month, uh, a tipping point is a point of sudden transition. So you warm the ocean, you warm the ocean, and then all of a sudden the ice is gone. And so a tipping point is a point at which when you reach a certain level of environmental change, the impact of that environmental change accelerates very rapidly. It's not linear. We're reaching that point much faster than anybody predicted. So climate change is happening now. It's faster than anybody ever predicted. What can we do about it? I recently attended a lecture by uh, Paul Ehrlich. He was at Cornell and now he's at Stanford. He's a, a population scientist. He wrote The Population Bomb and back in the late 1960s, one of the early, early people calling out an alarm about the environmental change we're doing to the planet. We had a, a coffee after his talk, a drink, and he, he was saying all of this that what I just said, but he said it very elaborately. He's 84 now that the planet is changing very rapidly. And I said to him, let's talk about not physically how we can make the changes, but actually how we're going to implement the changes we need to preserve the climate of our planet. See, we know the technology. Scientists know how to produce a comfortable life for people without causing the dramatic rise in CO2 that we're doing today. We know how to do it. So why aren't we doing it? And what Paul Ehrlich said was we need a quasi-religious transformation. Another great scientist, uh, George Schaller, one of the preeminent wildlife biologists of our time, says unless we can convince people of the spiritual value of the environment, the cause is lost. And what I've been saying throughout these last two interviews all comes to the same point, that if we continue to live this consume at all costs, consume as much as you can, increase our consumption as much as possible, wealth is possessions mentality that is in North America that we've exported to China, that we're exporting to India. If we continue with that philosophy of the world, then there's going to be some very major changes in the, in the climate of the planet, in our ability to feed ourselves. It's really, really, honestly not going to be pretty. And there is an alternate way. And the alternate way is what I've been talking about all along is to increase our spiritual connection to nature, 
Get your joy out of being in the mountains, not out of being in Walmart. Duh, it shouldn't be that difficult. <laughs> go for a hike. Don't go shopping. You don't need that stuff, you know. And if we can convince people to cherish free time, community, time with their families, time with nature over buying things and owning more stuff, then the world will be a better place in so many ways. John, you have been to almost every remote corner of the earth. Why do you call Montana home for part of the year? (laughs) I love it here. Me too. (laughs) After Chris died, I, I, I said, you know, I moved to Montana because that's where Chris wanted to move. Now I'm I'm free. I mean, it's not a good freedom, but I'm I'm free. I should I can redefine myself any way I want. And so I got in my pickup. I lived in my pickup for about a year, almost a year and a half. I went down. I lived in Boulder, Colorado, for a while, and that was too busy. And then I lived in Taos, and you know, with all the hippies and stuff. And and then one day I said, you know, I really like Western Montana. And I got my truck. I was living with a gal. And I said, you know, I'm going home. (laughs) And she said, oh, no, don't you like me? I said, there's nothing to do with you. I really want to be in Montana. Why? I don't know. There's a spirit to this place. There's a friendliness to it. There's a, a, I like the climate. I like the people. I like the open space. I mean, I live on the border of Forest Service land. If I walk out of my house, I can walk 120 miles or something due west before I hit the next road and somewhere in Idaho. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place to live. John, let's give the Missoula community three more adventuring tips. Oh, boy. Well, I think I just said when I was talking about the avalanches, pay attention to the small details of the environment that you're in. And that has two positive consequences. One is you you have a better time. If you go off into the wilderness and you talk about the latest TV show or the election or something like that, you're not in the wilderness. You're not getting that experience with the wilderness. So drop it. And Start paying attention to where you are, and the net result is you'll have a better time because really, do you really want to talk about the election? I don't think so. And you'll have a much greater chance of of being safe. So, I mean, that's only one. <laughs> I got to come up with two more. Wear warm socks. <laughs> Keep your feet dry. I, 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 I gave a talk in um, in Minnesota to a bunch of, about winter camping, and they asked a similar question. I say, I say, keep dry, don't do anything stupid. So now we've got three things here. I'm thinking on my feet. One is pay attention to the environment. Two is keep dry. The easiest way to get in trouble is to get wet. You get wet, however you get wet, from rain or falling in a river or whatever. You get hypothermic. You start losing your ability to think, to interact, to react. So keep dry and then don't do anything stupid. That's sort of a generic term. But most accidents occur by doing something stupid. Most of the time that accidents happen, we can see the failure mode 
in our heads beforehand. And if you can see a failure mode, then don't do it. Now, that's a tricky game because, I mean, as a professional adventurer, I take more risks than is probably good for me. And I certainly take more risks than I would take if I was guiding or being guided. But that's my job. But So I'm not saying don't take risks. I'm just saying that once you've decided on the risk level, don't do anything stupid. Thank you, John. <laughs> Thanks you, so much for coming into the studio and <laughs> it's recording. It's great to be here. John, you come to Missoula often. You give lectures. Just recently, you did a little dance performance in Missoula. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we can have... Not a little dance performance, a grand dance No, sorry. Yes, it was a grand <laughs> one. I heard about it. It was great. We're going to have links on the Trails website to your website. And if anyone's listening and they want to follow you, they'll have the opportunity to. Great. And... Uh, You know, I encourage people, if they want to read about my ideas more, to read my books. Uh, The only one left in print right now is The Raven's Gift about my time in Siberia. Let's end the show with one last song. What song do we have left? I think it's a Grateful Dead song. Oh, I, I, I think just for fun, not for any good reason, Friend of the Devil. Wonderful. Namaste, Mandela here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Adventure Radio. This is The Trail Less Traveled. Subscribe to The Trail Less Traveled on iTunes and follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world at traillesstraveled.net. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, John Turk. John Turk is one of National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year. He has written over 29 books, and his newest book, Crocodiles and Ice is available. You can get it on his website and find out more about John at johnturk.net. The Trail Less Traveled is the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. I am dedicated to collecting these interviews and sound effects on location, around the world, in some of the most remote locations. And by the time you hear this, I will be en route to New Zealand. I'm buying a van, turning it into a recording studio, and I will be sending you guys interviews from New Zealand. My adventure tip this week is to make sure you are aware of the avalanche conditions before you go out and backcountry ski. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula. But until next week's adventure, get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar simply doesn't shred itself. <laughs>